Hey guys, Ian here with another episode of Unleash and Unhinged, the podcast where we talk about all things dog. Dog training, dog behaviour, dog health, literally anything you can think about when it comes to dogs, we'll talk about on here. We hope you enjoy the episode. everyone and welcome back to another episode of Unleash and Unhinged. Today we have Hannah Brannigan from Drinking from the Toilet podcast. Welcome Hannah, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. Um, I was saying to you off air, I have listened to every single one of your episodes on your podcast and it has helped me in a number of ways, so thank you so much for that. This has been something I've wanted to speak to you uh, for a long time, because I just really love your approach, your take on things. So, but before we dive too much into all of that, uh, I would love to just hear a little bit more. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. Sure. Um, so, um, I'm Hannah Brannigan. I have a podcast myself called Drinking from the Toilet. Um, I also have an online community for competition obedience, but how I got here was a little bit of a winding path, a lot, a lot of detour side quests, if you will. Um, I actually, oh gosh, let's see. Well, I was born on a Thursday. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I got into dog training in, um, I think in a way, in the, in a similar way to how a lot of us get into dog training in that I had adopted a dog that I adopted because he was cute and then when I got him home, it turned out that he had a lot of behavior problems. And through the process of trying to figure out how to help him and um, and protect myself and everyone around us, um, I got um, <clears throat> you know I made contact with uh, you know other trainers and books, and I started um, one of the ways that I've always um, coped with anxiety is through like research. So you know it was looking for videos and, um, and, and reading books and, and, and I also don't seem to be able to read uh, like entry level materials. If for anything that I'm worried about, I have to go right into like the primary sources. So I found myself attending seminars that were aimed at professional trainers and you know, reading those kinds of materials. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and figured out, ruled out some options for how to help with his aggressive behavior and found like, Oh, it turns out like with a clicker and food, he's actually relatively easy. This particular dog was relatively easy to redirect um, his behavior. And that was so much fun. I got you know, really into a super deep at that point and um, started volunteering and helping out um, uh, with other helping out at uh, volunteering at the shelter and helping out teach classes um at a local training facility um, and assisting and just like being a pest, like just like tacking, like tagging on with everybody and asking a lot of, a lot of questions. And I was, I was in graduate school at the time. I'm in biology, not for, not for behavior. I was interested in behavior actually before, but um, my dad said there was no money in it. And so uh, <laughs> I should, I should look at like biotech. And so that's kind of the, the path I was taking, but I had discovered that um, the 
further I got into graduate school, the more I hated it. Um, and the more time I was finding myself at training events or spending time at the shelter or, you know, helping out with rescues and um, doing, you know, puppy classes and stuff. And I finally decided that what if I flipped that <laughs> and, um, and I just wrapped up this, <laughs> this master's thing and, um, and made animals and behavior my, my main gig. And so, so I did. Um, and I got a job at a vet clinic. I'm working as a vet tech full time during the day and then teaching, um, classes part time in the evening, which was really kind of f- also full time, but just not for full time pay, as yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, um, I did that for a while and I expanded their program and I was uh, teaching, gosh, four nights a week and, uh, and also usually running a class on the weekends. And, um, and so then I switched it to being part-time vet tech and full-time training. And I started doing more in-home lessons and I took in, um, day training clients and, um, and then eventually phased out the vet tech work entirely and was just doing dog training. And then various things happened and, and it became time to move on from that relationship. And I, um, started my own business working mainly in home, teaching some classes. And I had this problem with a lot of my clients. They would come in and they would take like the, you know, level one pet manners and they would really like it. And they said, well, what's next? And I said, well, we can do like level two and they would really like that. And so you can get your CGC and they would really like that. And they say, what's next? And I said, well, I don't really have anything. And like, well, could you make something? It's like, okay, well, how about you know, Thursday nights? Can you make it? We'll do a tricks class. And so they would take the tricks class and they wouldn't leave. They like just kept really being into doing training. And I was like, well, I guess we could do rally. And so I put together a rally class and they did that. And they said, well, what's next? And so that's how I found myself teaching competitive obedience completely by accident. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's so cool. It was, yeah, it was, it, they wouldn't go away. And I was like, you could, your dog is trained. Like you can go, <laughs> yeah. but they didn't, yeah, they didn't want to leave. Um, I mean, not everybody was like that, but enough of them that I ended up running usually a rally class and an obedience class a week in addition to the... I'm assuming this happened more than once. Otherwise, you were just training the same five people. <laughs> like... it, 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 I was, it, it did happen more than once. It was the same five people who would then get... Then at that point, those dogs were getting old and they got puppies and they wanted to do it with those dogs too. And then now we're up to like 20 people. And, like, and those people, now they got their... Now they're on their second dogs. And that first group of people, now they have their third dogs. Um, so... Yeah, I've had, I have some folks that I've been working with for, you know, 12 years at this point, probably closer to 15. Time is, time is a construct, so it's very confusing. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I got into the sports stuff myself very much the same way, right? Like I, I had a reactive dog, aggressive dog, and he, well, he wasn't biting me anymore. So what's next? Well, let's try fly ball. Well, what's next? Let's try agility. Um, and then I got, you know, another dog and I, wanted to try sports with that dog. And so, yeah, it was, it was an accident. Um, but here we are. That's that's a great way to do it. Like, um, yeah, naturally evolving into, Oh, I like this. Let's just keep going. Like when you you pull a thread, you're like, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to just keep pulling that one. Oh shit. It's been 12 years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can relate. I remember it sounds, I mean, not that, I mean, I went down a different route in the, 
in terms of what I did, but similar, my, my career went, you know, I was, I was a tradie. And I remember telling my dad, Hey, I'm going to be a dog trainer. He went, that's not a job. There's no money in that. (laughs) (laughs) Considering I'd already dropped out of university that he'd paid for, he was pissed. So, Mm. and then, yeah. And then I found myself, I was like, Oh shit, I live in a different country with I'm training dogs. Um, cool <laughs> that's mm-hmm. awesome that's so cool and um what's the saying i like, turn your mess into your message like it's uh like it's a situation i think a lot of us have found ourselves in we found ourselves in a bit of well my dog's an absolute headache um mm-hmm. let's try and fix this and then we go into that rabbit hole and then all of a sudden we find ourselves teaching mm-hmm. what yeah yeah and i think um I I don't know yes this. Uh are you a man bride in saying that very early on you found that clicker and treats to be effective, or did you go down an aversive route at first? So the first trainer that I contacted for help was I don't even remember how I got his number. Um and I did not know it at the time, but we we know the type, and that is the type like he was if you close your eyes and picture, that's what you're, you would be right. And uh, I did one session uh, with him and it, it went poorly for me and for the dog. And I just, it was not, I was, you know, many years on and much more maturity and perspective. Now I realized that nothing during that session had anything to do with me or my dog. It had everything to do with him and his, what he brought to the table. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or under the table or however, Ooh. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was, it was not helpful. I did not get anything from that. I, I was, um, yeah, I mean, it was very, it, it was very physically about, about physical punishment for the dog. And then if that wasn't working, it was because I was doing it wrong and, you know, I'm just a woman, so I'm not strong enough to handle a real dog. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, it's like, well, I'm not really getting a lot out of this. And from there, there was just a lot of me muddling around for some amount of time. Um, and then I found another trainer that I met just by ch- like sheer chance. And um, she said, you know, there's other ways, there's other things we could do. And she wasn't really at the time. And I don't think she would identify now as a clicker trainer or as a positive reinforcement trainer, but much closer at that time to, to what we would consider positive reinforcement or clicker trainer, you know, showed me how to use the food and, and showed, you know, told me about clickers. And I think she, she loaned me a DVD to watch. And, and it turned out that where, trying to use corrections on a pinch collar with that dog would just cause him to turn around and bite me, which I felt like was a worse situation than when he was just trying to bite other people. If I just put food in front of his face, he was a hound mix. And so he was absolutely happy to take that food. Like, absolutely. Like, oh, oh yeah, that's fine. Food, food, you've got food, you've got hot dogs. Very good. And so, I mean, they're not, not, I've worked with many regular aggressive dogs that were not that clear cut since, yeah. but he was that dog where it was actually, he really could get into it. Yeah, it was, it was, you got a foot in the door 
And from there, I still would go back and do a lot of things differently, could have done things a lot more efficiently and effectively. But he was such a, he was just such a straightforward dog. Um, he was, you know, he's never gonna be a therapy dog. Um, but he would, he would do anything for food. And, and absolutely, you know, you want to trim my nails? You got, but you got food? Okay. That's fine. You can do that. So it was, uh, it just made such an impact on me how quickly it, it made a difference. Um, yeah. And then it seemed like it just opened this whole, like door to other other possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, they, absolutely. I can hear people sitting at home going, well, my dog won't take food. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. There are so many other ways to train. But for, I think everybody needs that window of like finding what your dog, finding out what your dog finds reinforcing. It's such a cool feeling because then all of a sudden you've got something you can really help your dog re- with and really work with your dog so that we're not working mm-hmm. against it it's just like oh yeah right you like you like hot dogs or you you like the ball or you like your attention or you just like walking away from that moron over there um it's, uh, mm-hmm. like yeah. that, finding out what reinforces the dog is that it's a really connecting moment it's mm-hmm. absolutely what changed I, I i was started off midlands england punishment was only the only thing on the table Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never, really, it's all I knew, but it never felt right. And I'm like, uh, okay, I'll, I'll do it because it's what's on the table and that's what everybody's doing. Um, mm-hmm. and my dog just really liked chasing me. And <laughs> that, that was so much fun <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and just really like playing with me. And when I found that out, I'm like, I don't really need to, I don't need to stop you doing things anymore. I can just work with you. And it changed mm-hmm. our relationship and changed it. It still didn't. Unfortunately, I do think it came too late for my relationship with her, my understanding that a bit mm-hmm. like actually like, you know, forming mm-hmm. an opinion in my head it, with her when I was my life with her, it was just a feeling. It's like, uh, but yeah, later on yeah. it clicked. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about today was that kind of with your background in that obedience um arena uh i'm not an Mm -hmm. obedience trainer by any stretch of the imagination but that scene the obedience scene traditionally hasn't been for a long time was it wasn't very positive reinforcement orientated was it no and it still really isn't um we're i mean there's more of us and i think the kind of the median has shifted, but, um, we're still not, (laughs) yeah, yeah. We're still not, uh, food, food and toys are becoming more common, which is not the same thing as saying that positive reinforcement is, Mm -hmm. is becoming more common, but compared to not that long ago, there were, and there may still be clubs where you aren't, literally not allowed to use food. Now, most of them are using food in some way. And so that's, I mean, again, it's a foot in the door, right? So you, you're at least now we're able to, to, to talk about it. There was a club that I haven't been up to since the before time, but they had a, you know, a no clicker sign on the door. That was uh, like a big no, like universal no with a clicker in the middle of it. And I was like, that's just, that's just silly. It's just a thing to, to brace yourself against, but whatever. 
but yeah, so it's not, it's not common. And that is actually part of how I got kind of stuck in obedience was because, um, I have this like oppositional reflex thing where, uh, like initially got interested, like I got involved at all because I wanted to actually compete with my, my mixed breed dog and there just weren't that many opportunities around in any sport. And the first one that I found that would allow you to compete with a mixed breed was um, the UKC obedience had a, or I mean, still does as far as I know, have a mixed breed registry option. And there was a, a trial that was in driving distance. And so why not? Um, but then once I was there and I was doing it and I was meeting people and talking to them, well, you can't, they, they told me I couldn't do obedience in this way. And so the second you tell me I can't do something now, I have to do it or die trying. And if they had just kept their mouth shut, I probably would have done like that one trial and moved on. But no. And now here it's 15 years later, I've you know, competed with with multiple dogs, multiple breeds, national tournaments, and um, all because they said that I couldn't do it. That's which is yeah. Like I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, mine. That's again. I'm sorry to keep drawing back to my own parallels, but like that Mm. reminds me so much of like when I heard about dominance theory, and I'm like, no man, Mm. no man, I'm anti it. And uh, yeah, I'm. That that was 2011. That that came into my head, and I'm there. I am like still to this day, like on social media, like. (laughs) that's so cool and Mm -hmm. i really love i want you to just if you don't mind diving into for a second a really really cool thing you just said that we just glanced over we're using food but that doesn't necessarily mean we're using positive reinforcement Mm -hmm. what does that mean like because i mean that's what i know but yeah what does that look like I mean, there's a lot of different directions that we can go. There's a lot, a lot of lover levels or layers there. But, um, I would say like on the, the, the first thing that, that I would talk about is the layer that we, we often call negative reinforcement with a cherry on top, where you're still training the same way with the same, uh, same approach, same techniques, same, corrections but just after the correction you then also praise or you also give them food so you're doing the thing they you know they make a mistake you give them the pop i'm comfortable making this generalization because i I can feel myself wanting to put like an asterisk in parentheses one would need to check one would need to um to ask the dog and, and to collect some data um but in general those animals are still those behaviors are very much being performed under a negative reinforcement contingency where they also get food. But the function of the behavior is really to avoid the correction. That's, yeah. that's uh, what's maintaining that behavior. The food maybe takes the sting off a little. I mean, then I think it can take the sting off and it can kind of help mitigate some fallout. Not always, it's not a guarantee, but sometimes, um, but it's, it's, again, it's still the function of the behavior is still there. It's still an avoidance, escape avoidance contingency. Um, it's where a lot of trainers stay. Mm-hmm. Um, because to, to shift from there, like I do think those trainers care about their dog's experience. And that's why they want to bring stuff into the training that the dog likes. 
And it does make the training look a lot better from the outside. The dogs look more pleasant Mm. um, and the performances improve. But when we're really training with positive reinforcement, it is a totally different conversation than the training the same, same old way, same old escape avoidance based uh, framework, um, but just with food. And I think that that like, that's a big, there's a big mental shift that has to happen. And it is a very uncomfortable one. Like personal growth is always terrible. It's just awful and very uncomfortable, but to like kind of let go of the wall and swim far enough out to, to, to get there is, is a really very scary thing. And it's the, the way that we need to approach the training is completely different and it's, and it's, and it's hard. Um, it's very effortful. It's right. not enough to just train the way we, like what I tried to do for a while. And it took me, cause it took me a while to figure this out. Like this is, this is why like, I'm not comfortable calling myself like, Oh, you're a crossover trainer. Well, I was never really committed to training with okay. compulsion before. I just didn't know what else to do. Yeah. I was raised with compulsion. So I, <laughs> this is what I was familiar <laughs> with. It was a much longer process. Like I'm still con- would consider myself cross. I'm still trying to figure out like all of the, like unpacking, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy. This is a lifelong journey. And what I tried to do for a long time was basically train the same way that the other people that I watched that were successful train, but just skip the punishment part and just use more food. But that doesn't really work. It's a dead end because it leaves a vacuum. And what I realized is that to train well, and elegantly and, and in a sophisticated way with positive reinforcement, we're actually having to approach the training completely differently um, than someone who might also be training with toys and food, but is operating on the premise that they will be introducing compulsion at some point. Yeah. It, and having listened to you a lot over the last couple of years, the um, it never occurred to me until listening to you that it looks different from the very beginning, like when mm-hmm. I uh, like in terms of if in some and this is not not word for word, but what I took from listening to you was if at some point in your training plan you either intend to or are not against using aversives, the training plan from the very beginning, how you even set up the dog, how you establish communication patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, how you establish a relationship looks so different to if you didn't, if you completely took them off the table. Yep. And, and that, that will influence so many things. It will influence the relationship. It will influence just the way you move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every little detail. Uh, yeah. it, it just takes, it changes the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really does. Um, the foundation of our of our training is going to be whatever the motivators are that we're planning to use and if i am planning to to use positive reinforcement and only positive reinforcement on a again parentheses asterisk um and, and only positive reinforcement in a trading context the the vast majority of the work that I'm going to do with that young dog is going to be establishing those reinforcement strategies mm-hmm. and setting those skills up. You're going to do the same thing if you're planning to train with other tools as well. You're just 
but you're putting the time in in a different way. Um, the folks that I know that do use whatever kind of, of training tools for compulsion um, and who are doing it well, put months of, of conditioning in with their dogs to prepare them for that. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing it and I'm setting things up like, you know, one of the most terrifying things is my dogs are allowed to leave the training session because I have to allow them to leave the training session if I'm going to be training with positive reinforcement. But if I would like for them to not leave the training session because I am still me and I am still a person and having my dog leave the training session feels like garbage. So I really have to think from the very beginning, what am I going to do? How am I going to set this training session up so that my dog does not choose to leave the training session, but not because I've blocked him with a leash or a gate, um, or because he'll, he doesn't get his food in any other way. Like if he doesn't work with me, he'll, he can starve and he'll just be extra hungry tomorrow. If I'm not going to be using any of that, what else do I need to do from the very beginning to fingers crossed? There's no guarantees in dog training, but it's close to guarantee that he doesn't leave the training session as I can. And that's, that's hard. Like that's different and hard. Yeah. You're trying to get, keep this dog. Uh, opting in mm-hmm. and and basically what you've taken off the table is if my dog decides that they want to opt out I'm not going to stop that so rather than yeah. using what a great time to lose your voice Ian um, mm-hmm. <laughs> if I yeah taking off the table like if my dog opts out I'm not going to put uh a, a stopper in place, a physical stopper, like a leash or a gate. I'm going to listen to that. And that's that whole, that goes well beyond positive reinforcement. That just goes back down to consent um, of like, does my dog actually consent to being here? And we're not using mm-hmm. coercion to, to keep them in. We're really talking about, and this kind of leads me on to the next kind of not question, but point around this is like, well, how does my dog feel about being here? You know, I, I really want to play this sport or I really want my dog to do this thing. I personally want my dogs to really to, to opt in and, and to want to be there, not just be there because I took them there. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked your take on this with, I imagine you got a few weird looks when you were, in the obedience uh, scene and traditionally, you know, that's not been on the table and people are looking at you like, your dog just left. <laughs> like, I probably would have, but um, again, my dogs actually don't leave Yeah, cool. by the time I get there. And I, I would say that by the time, by the time I have them out at competition in front of people, you can't tell. You can't tell the difference. I mean, you can tell the difference because I, th- I think they look better. But um, but you couldn't tell that they they have ever had that option. It's just whose responsibility is it? it or, or rather, more than that, the contingency, right? Like that. I mean, that's one way that we could that we could operationalize consent is we're we're taking away the or else. Uh, mm. There is no or else. Like you better stay with me and work or else you're not going to get fed tonight 
or else um, I'm going to drag you back in here or like there isn't an or else or there's as little of it as I can realistically manage on a practical level. Um, so, yes, if my dogs had left me during the, the train, although honestly, a lot of com- traditionally trained compulsive dogs leave the ring in sports. So that's not which was always one of my arguments like that's not a guarantee yeah. uh that you you know you don't have they would say well what are you gonna do you can't take clicker and treats into the ring it's like well you can't take your pinch collar into the ring either so i'm gonna do exactly what you do if my dog doesn't do something i'm gonna go cry in my car i'm gonna go home and figure out how to train it differently on monday like that's <laughs> that's what I, that's what i'm gonna do um that's all anyone can do once you're at the competition no matter how you um, train your dog at that point it feels like shit like yeah, like that just that's that's just personal at that point. So there's there's no like once you've entered, how you train doesn't really matter at that point. You're you've put your money on the table and now you just hope. Um and then you take the hopefully you take the feedback that you get by the you know from the, the data that that performance provides and you apply it for your next week's training plan. <laughs> yeah. Next week's training plan of just crying into my popcorn. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes 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 it's calling a friend from the parking lot um yeah but that is a, it's a really like uh, for me again it's a really important point like like you say in that moment when you need it and in this context we're talking about competition based but day-to-day life it could be the goal might be sitting down and having a coffee with your dog at a busy place like that's game day right and mm-hmm. In preparation for that moment, the experience for you and the dog, I feel like it, my personal opinion is it's much healthier to have gone down a route of training for that and playing those games through a contingency of, I'm going to make this as rewarding as possible and pleasant as possible. Mm-hmm. It feels much better for me to mm-hmm. interact with my dog that way. I don't want to be punishing my dog. I don't, I don't. I've been there where I feel like I'm just a nag and mm-hmm. I don't like being nagged and I don't like nagging. It's just a really crappy way of living, let alone like with somebody I love. It It is. And I think somebody asked on one of the Facebook groups that I occasionally follow, like what, what, like what com- caused you to commit to positive reinforcement training. I don't remember the exact question they prompt, but I thought about it. And a lot of people say things, Oh, well, you know, I love my dogs and I could never hurt them. And, and the, there's a lot of kind of common explanation. I, and when I really thought about it, the real reason, in addition to stubbornness, that's not nothing. Um, so there's stubbornness and then, and there's the fact that it, it works and it works better. Those things are all true. And I will be honest, had that first trainer's, to call it a method would be more generous than what he deserved. But um, had that that worked, I would have felt okay with that. Like I, I, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would, I'm not willing to, I want to be very clear. Effectiveness is not enough as far as I'm concerned, but also it's, it is a requirement. Like it needs, whatever I do needs to be effective. So feeling warm and fuzzy, but not getting the job done, it's not going to work for me. I, I, I would like both. Yeah. But what really, what really um, motivated and continues to maintain why I'm so committed to positive 
reinforcement and finding ways to solve old problems with new reinforcement-based solutions is because I don't like who I am when I am in the punishment-based mind space. When I am thinking of how can I stop this behavior, it the whole package comes with a, a, a emotion and feelings are terrible. They're very uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like them, but, um, but those particular emotions that it comes with resentment and anger and frustration, like they're, it flows both ways, right? Like when I'm feeling frustrated with my animals or my child, my instinct is, well, how can I stop them from being so frustrating? And then like, you know, Hannah 2.0 is, Oh, well, okay. What, what skill is missing? What, do I need to teach them so that uh, so that we don't you know encounter this problem again? But as soon as I'm, it's also why I don't use like a no reward marker in training because just the the process of of doing that and putting any thought energy into that immediately takes me right back to that same place of looking for errors. And you know what? If you go looking for errors, you will find them. And if you find them, it doesn't feel very good and it's going to piss you off. <laughs> and then you're, you're going to be in this, this cycle of finding more and more errors. And it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of energy to find something that's not right. That's not, that doesn't take someone to be very clever, right? But can you find what is going right? And this is like a psychological trick. That totally has nothing to do with dog training that people like recommend. And, and it's, and I hate it when psychological tricks work because I do sometimes just want to wallow and I think that's okay. But when it is time to stop wallowing and get up and move on with your life, there are things like, Oh, you're finding gratitude and uh, stuff like that. But on a, you know, on a very practical level, when I'm working with my dogs and I'm looking for rather looking for ways to stop behavior, but I'm looking for what skill is missing and how could I build that? Mm-hmm. I'm way more relaxed and comfortable and happier. And I end my days just feeling better. And it's, it's like, I don't know. It's like one of those little, it's like one of those cascades where like, you know, like when you, if you, like everybody has them, like, you drink enough water, you also then make better choices like eating and, and drinking of other things later in the day. And then you also tend to get to sleep at a better time and you sleep better and then you wake up and you drink more water. And so it's like, it's like that for me because it does feeling like a nag sucks. Yeah. And we all do it, right? We, we, we all do it. We, we will yeah. at some point, most days have a bitch in a moment. And, right? and uh, but I think you're right. Like it, it, it was a conscious choice uh, to, I found myself, I remember a point in my life where I was really down and I found myself like really kind of focusing on everything that was going wrong. I'd had. Oh yeah. The second you start making a list of why this is the worst day of your life, yeah. the list just gets longer and longer and longer. <laughs> yeah. It had been, it had been a period of time over like about three months. I'd had operations on both of my shoulders. I'd been on morphine for two months and mm-hmm. I I got so pissed off at myself for thinking negatively that mm-hmm. I just went, no, I can't do this anymore. And actually only two weeks after that, I booked a one-way flight to Fiji and only ever went back to England three times in 
12 years. Um, so just kind of, it was a choice to go, nah, I can't, I can't continue in this mindset. And I had to, I, mm-hmm. I had to break away from where I was and remove a lot of context cues in my environment from me. Um, yeah. But from that moment forward, it was, and it's, and it's a constant, it's not, it's not like, oh, this is me now. It's, it's constantly having to remind myself around to stay in that mindset. And I, I love, hate this term, but that growth mindset of, no, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to look for things that I can do and ra- ra- rather than focusing on things that I don't want to happen, I mm-hmm. typically have a focus on, Hey, I want this to happen. And it's very, it's a subtle wording, but huge impact and huge difference of like mentality yes. in terms of my life and the way I approach my relationships with people and dogs. Mm-hmm. It, it's completely changed. Like, uh, I very much used to be, I need to stop my dog barking. Um, whereas these yeah. days I'm like, no, I need, I need to help my dog feel comfortable in the home. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Completely different yes. mindset. And I want my dogs yeah. to feel like that as well. Right. I don't know. Like, well, I'm assuming I do. I, I say, I don't know about that from you. I'm assuming that you do want that for your dogs too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I hope that my dogs get as much out of the relationship with me as I get out of my relationship with them. Um, I mean, selfishly, I'd like for them to be just as codependent on me as I am on them, but, um, and probably they are at least the, at least the hurting dogs are. Yeah, I was going to say the, the, the breed. The terrier does not. Yeah. He's, he's, he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. He does not feel responsible for, for my emotions in any way. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like on the one hand, there, there's absolutely, I mean, I do think there's absolutely ethical and humane concerns. And that's on like the one side of things, but that's, yeah, that, so that's, that's one thing. There's, how having my animals around me makes me feel about myself, mm-hmm. which is really not on them. And that's really saved more for therapy, but, but also not nothing. <laughs> and so, um, when my dogs are doing things with me and they're opting in and their ears are perked and I can take my young intact male out of the car at a park that we've never been to before. Um, in front of a lot of other people and other dogs and do it without never stop. We should open the car door, pop them out and go do a frisbee dog demo. I'm feeling pretty good. Like yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. a little, little something in there that feels really good. Um, but then also on the, like I always got to tie it back to the, pra- on a practical level, those things aside, which are significant, I don't want to discount them, but those things aside, that is what allows me to do those things. Like all, it all comes together as the package in the same way that me, um, trying to approach things in terms of building behavior comes with that whole package of behaviors and, and emotions for me. Um, it also does for them. So 
you get more for your money, um, so to speak. And the better I get at understanding and, um, and I'm going to say manipulating, but I don't mean that in a, in, in a, you know, that's kind of a complicated word, but I don't have a better one for it. manipulating reinforcement. I get like bonus stuff that comes along with it because of that commitment to the positive reinforcement. Um, which is not to say that I don't screw up, which is not to say that like there's the accidental, like I'm stepping over a baby gate and I accidentally like kick my dog in the face because he didn't realize how, how closely behind me he was following me. Like those happen. Um, or I have a small dirt colored dog who is frequently underfoot and I step back and you know, step right on his foot. Um, like those are accidents. Hopefully they don't count against me too much in the grand scheme of things, but they don't not count. But there's also like, I screw up, get frustrated, have a bad day and yell and throw a target stick, you know, like not a training. That's not a training plan. Um, But it's, it's an emotional response because I am a living organism and I continue to do my own work, work on my own emotional regulation. But also sometimes I'll do something in a training session that I intend to be positive reinforcement. I intend to, I think I'm doing the right thing. And it's, not until after the fact that I realized, oh, that was too much for this dog, or I thought that was going to be reinforcing. He did not experience that as reinforcing. Sometimes they experience it as not as the opposite of reinforcing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, like the, you know, those things, those things still happen. But I do think I'm able to get away with those when they happen because they are few and far between. Um, I have such a huge bank account with my dogs at that point that when I do screw up, it's going to have less of an impact and we have a way to get back to like a new starting point. It's such a big difference between because that, that, that stuff's going to happen, right? You're gonna, you're gonna mess it up. You're gonna do things that your dog goes, mate, that, that was awful. Thanks for that. Like, thanks for that kick in yeah. the face. Um, Why would you do that? Right? But I love you. <laughs> there's, but there's such a big difference between, and this is always a pushback we'll hear from uh, trainers and people that like to advocate for the use of punishment. Like, well, punishment happens. Punishment's a natural thing that occurs. It is. And mm-hmm. we're not going to yeah. deny that. That doesn't mean you need to throw more at them deliberately as part of your training plan. There was <laughs> just the other day, a social media post that I try to avoid, but it triggered me. And it's like literally saying what you need to do is set your dog up to do things so that you can punish them for doing it so that they learn. And I just scratched my head for a few minutes watching that and going, Oh, you could train your dog to do things that you like. And it felt like it was too easy, but no, man. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, that's a common, it, it, it's just up in the parenting world too, where it's like, oh, we have to prepare them for the real world by making them suffer as children. Well, guess what? <laughs> I was parented in that way. And let's talk about how much harder the real world is when you're also trying to recover from childhood trauma. But, but it's, you know, like, oh, you can't, um, the the idea like there's there's a myth that uh, positive reinforcement trainers 
don't let anything uncomfortable, like their dogs never get uncomfortable. Everything, you know, they never have anything hard happen to them. And I have spent the last decade plus actively trying to eliminate frustration and aversives from my training. And I still can't get there. Like I've still not gotten, like I'm not, again, I'm not doing it on purpose, but I've been actively working really hard, traveling to different countries to learn from other people and like getting feedback from other professionals and, and, and not just dog trainers and, you know, marine mammal trainers and horse trainers and people who work with lions. Like how, like, how can I do this better? And I still can't prevent my dogs from experiencing frustration, um, discomfort. Like I, so I am confident in saying that I don't need to introduce frustration or aversives into the training because I can't get rid of them no matter how hard I try. <laughs> so I don't need, I just don't need to put any extra effort there. I can save, I can save my time. And my dog is going to develop, going to experience plenty of frustration and sometimes downright fear. You know, I don't want that to happen, but that happens. Like, Truck goes, we, we live on a road where not tons of traffic goes past, but there's a speed bump. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just coincidentally, as we leave the building, a truck will go over that speed bump and make a ton of noise. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, both of us shit ourselves, right? So mm-hmm. there's going to be times where this happens in life and me avoiding me actively not putting punishment in my training plan hasn't isn't the reason I've raised a wallflower. (laughs) (laughs) He is he's got his own shit to deal with. Like he got Mm -hmm. he got attacked at 16 weeks old and ragdolled. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. took a long time for him to emotionally recover. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't that would have taken a lot longer if my training Mm -hmm. plan had involved using punishment around dogs because he was barking at dogs. Like everything around that was built around his trauma and like me, me, me adding any aversives into that. Right. 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 Well, and like, like to tie it back to something you said earlier, you know, if you're, if your focus is on stopping your dog from barking in the house versus helping him feel calm in the house, well, what does calm look like? It also, like, as soon as we're going down that, we take that direction we we do get a lot less barking in the house, but we also get a lot less of the other crap that we also don't want in the house. And we get a lot more of the stuff that we do because it all comes together in a way that you don't get for free if you just stop the dog barking. Like you just, if you cover, you put your thumb over that hole, it's just going to squirt out somewhere else. Mm. Whereas like, oh, like, could I build you an aqueduct? I don't know. This The metaphor escapes me, but... um so that it's not a problem anymore. And then you get all of that other stuff for free. And that, that I find very motivating for me. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's that, it's that hard stuff to really put your finger on exactly what it is. Cause it's, it is, it is a feeling like, it's like, mm-hmm. I really like, I really like the relationship I've got. I don't, and it's not built around 
it, it doesn't feel like a indecent proposal all the time where he's just doing it because <laughs> like he doesn't know any other way. Like I, you know, there's not that gross relationship where I'm like, feel like I'm using coercion and he's just doing it because to avoid negative consequences from me. Like we all love, uh, we, as I think every, there's a dog trainer out there that doesn't love feeling in control. There's not many people out there that don't love that feeling of I've got control of this. It, people really who say that they aren't are, are not only control freaks, they're also liars. So yes. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> it's true. It's, um, it's so reinforcing. Um, but I don't, how I, and, and that's I think what you've kind of, the point you've raised a few times is how you get there, right? How you mm-hmm. get that control. Like that, that ability to take your dog into the field and be able to do the thing. Yes. But because both of you have like, we're doing the fucking thing. <laughs> it feels so good. Whereas mm-hmm. one of you, if you walk out on the field, like that feeling of like, okay, we're doing the thing. You better do the thing. Like that's a really different just way of being. You know, and, and I think. This is something that we we talk a lot about in my in my group in my online community um, because you do eventually have to take the leash off, and that's a source of massive anxiety for every every human, right? Like because because you don't know, you don't really know, and um, it's the metaphorical releasing control. Yes, literal and metaphorical, and and one of the things. That, I mean, that I have discovered is, well, one, if I'm training without a leash in the first place, so there's no leash, there was never a leash. In fact, it then has become more of a training problem for us, both myself personally and a lot of us in the community is that we forget to put a leash on um, until we're like, like we don't, because we don't ever train with the leash, the leash isn't, isn't part of the training plan. We don't need it to stop the dog or block the dog or correct the dog. It's irrelevant. Um, but then when we go to, to go out to a trial or to train somewhere else where you legally have to have a leash. At least like you need a leash for practical reasons, moving in and out through the parking lot. And we forget that we've never trained with a leash and we're like, Oh, I really, this is something else in my hand. Um, so that becomes kind of thing. It becomes a distraction at that point. Actually, the leash is a distraction. I forgot where I was going with that. Um, oh, earlier on I had, you know, every dog brings a gift for you and it's usually not one that you want. Um, in terms yes. of things that, that the universe needs you to learn. So I had a dog that was a, a lot of dog, um, from IPO lines. And, um, he, he was, we'll just say he's a lot of dog. And when I had him off leash now, I, and he was trained the, he was trained in, in my, my more positive reinforcement. Like he was since the commitment. Since the commitment to positive reinforcement, let's say it, we'll say it that way. And so the leash was not part of his his thing. Like it wasn't part of his training plan. It wasn't like, oh, I can get it on the leash, boy, take the leash off. But I still had the memory of that in my in my body, you know? Like, and so I'm taking the leash off. And I responded by expressing my personal anxiety by doing a lot of prompting and cueing and micromanaging of him in that space. Uh, and this is in competition. So like, we're like, get in, let's go heel, get up right here, right here, right here, buddy, right here, right here, right here, right. Good boy. And like, I'm getting increasingly more shrill and less like how 
I've ever sounded to him in his life um, in training. And he experienced that as aversive, presumably, because he would avoid me. And that felt worse. So I would then escalate and micromanage become more shrill and work harder to be as fun as possible because I wanted him to have fun. Don't you want to have fun? Do you want to have fun? Aren't we having fun? Aren't we having fun? I am right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And it was, it was, it became very clear very quickly that I was digging a hole. And what I had to learn was that when this was a very well-trained dog, I had put in the work and I had to walk into the ring as a person who had put in the work and I had to give the cue that I had trained him to respond to. And then I just had to let him do his job. And that was as scary to me as taking a physical leash off. And the very first time, cause I made, I think I made the commitment between like, like I had a two day trial. We competed on Saturday and I was the, the basket case. And then Saturday night I was like, well, you've already paid for Sunday. We were at a hotel and everything. Saturday was a shit show. We may as well do something different on Sunday. And so I was like, you know what? What do I have to lose? I'm going to commit to just giving him the cue. And I had all this, I was you know, doing the whole, well, if you were your own client, what would you say to you? And I really don't like that. But, uh, but I did. I was like, okay, well, I would say you've trained him to respond to that cue. You know he knows the cue. What if you gave the cue you trained him to respond to instead of a bunch of other garbage? And so the very first time I gave the cue and you could see on his face that he had already anticipated I was going to be the alien. And so he started to kind of like do the sideways ears. And then when I didn't, his ears came back up and he was like, oh, well, I know how to do that. And he did the thing. And then like the next time I go, I call him to heal. I give him the cue. And then I just stood there and he came right to heal. Like it was... Someone watching from the outside probably wouldn't have even seen the momentary glitch on that very first one where he kind of kind of that little slight glance away, but then completed the thing. I saw it and like some of my hair fell out, I think, in that moment. But um, but he did. And then the next time I was a little more confident and I gave the cue and he came right to heel. And I never had a problem with him after that. Um, And I've been able to carry that forward. And so that's that's one of the things that we talk about, because that moment of really letting go of everything that the leash represents for you um, and letting the training actually show is, is really hard. And it's a good, it's another place where like, you really have to move the mindset over. Like you really have to buy in um, to the whole thing to get the, the benefit of it. So that was just, yeah. Um, but I was able to I was able to get that because of all of the stuff that came before. I was gonna say you you did the work, right? Like mm-hmm. you you were you had prepared for the situation. And mm-hmm. when that day came, it still didn't mean it came easily. Like we took that leash off and we go, oh shit. And mm-hmm. but being able to regroup. And remember, like that in itself is kind of evidence that you've done the work. The dog had the dog had done the work, or you've done the work with the dog. Mm-hmm. But even just the ability, being able to regroup and have that conversation with yourself, I'm hoping you had somebody on the phone there for you. That sounds like a shit evening. Um, <laughs> <but> like, <laughs> the, um, like that, 
being able to regroup and go, you know the thing, you know how to do the thing, you've done the thing, go and do the thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's evidence that like, that doesn't, that doesn't come, that clarity doesn't come without the, 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 the all the work done prior. If you haven't done mm-hmm. that, then it's very hard to know what to fall back on. Cause if you mm-hmm. hadn't, let's say, let's say we, you hadn't and you had a shit show and mm-hmm. you'd have gone home that evening and then gone, well, I have no idea what went wrong there because <laughs> you've probably gone, either not gone the next day or gone and done exactly the same the next day and then got frustrated because we do have two shit shows in a row. I mean, I have tested that theory as well. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go Many on Saturday times. and then do the exact same thing on Sunday and get exactly the same results. Yeah. Um, no, it it is. And it's, I mean, I think the old, my old thought process would have been, well, there's something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's just got poor temperament or fill in the blank. Um, or the judge was, uh, the judge, it was standing too close or the, the, the air conditioning in that building was just not, uh, was just too loud or the footing wasn't like, it would have found some external place to put it. Um, and ideally all of those places would be able to absorb some of the ownership of the outcome. And, and those things can all still be true, but I can't do anything about them. And like one of the things that I am always circling back to is that the only animal whose behavior I actually have any real control over is this myself as a me animal. People can't see me pointing and you'd think after a hundred and however many podcast episodes, I would have remembered that. But um, this animal, the one I'm pointing to right now. And so in those moments like one of the, so like one you know again one of the things that that we say is is or not, that I say and I tell you and then they repeat it um once I'm at the trial or I'm at the or whatever like all I can do is do my job and certainly me not doing my job is not going to improve our performance like <laughs> like I can I can tell you for certain that I've spent you know years training these cues and if I go in and don't give those cues I'm probably not going to get those behaviors um so well, what if you just focus on giving the damn cues that you trained and then we'll see um and that is one of the reasons why I just cannot justify bringing averses into my training because on the day that I can walk into an obedience trial or any other sport and do my job perfectly. And I'm the one who paid money to be there. Like I have all of the choice. I've read the rule book. I have the back, uh, you know, I have the, the top to the puzzle box. So I know what it's supposed to look like. And I still can't, I still can't get my act together consistently every single time. So like what on earth, like what business would I have bringing in a verse event for the dog? Also the fact that public humiliation is about the most powerful aversive that I can personally experience. I would way rather have like physical pain or um, like anything else. And yet I continue to sign up for it and it does not necessarily improve my performance. So punishment's not a guarantee, but um, yeah. So that's where, you know, okay, I'm going to go in and I am going to like not even barely look at him and I am going to do my job. And let's see what happens. Because then I do. The only way I'm going to get an idea of, of if my dog's 
what my dark's training really is, is if I actually do the things that I've trained to do. The big ass holding yourself accountable. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> so shit. Like, it's just hard. But yeah. you're right though. Like I, I absolutely rip that up with one of your podcasts and use it a lot. You're the only individual's behavior you're in control of is your own. So concentrate on controlling that rather than your dog and hold yourself accountable. Like <laughs> it's, it's not easy, but it's true and true is yeah. always easy. <laughs> no, no video helps a lot with that because video does not lie. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, again, things I've learned from you without you even knowing, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, taking, taking that video and having a hard look at yourself, um, uh, like listening back to a training session that like you recorded with your, with your client with their consent. Um, (laughs) it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not always easy, but it's how we grow. Um, yeah. Um, Hey, this is a great, opportunity to do I just want to say I'm gonna wrap it up there, but um I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And well, before we sign off, I'd love to if you could just let everybody know where they can find you. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean you can um uh, you can find my podcast, Drinking from the Toilet, which is available everywhere that podcasts you know, normally are available, as far as I know. I also have my obedience community Clicker training obedience is um, zero to CD, and um, you can you can find that you can Google it. you can Google my name Hannah Brannigan. That's H A N A H, and then Brannigan is one in at a time. So um, it's a, a little different spelling of Brannigan than is probably the most common. And my website, yeah, my website is hannahbrannigan.dog, and I'm on most of the social medias these days. If the, unless there's a new one that I haven't, I'm not on threads. I don't know. I haven't gone there yet, but um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a message to, to sign up and I'm like, that's exhausting. No, thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> I'm, and I'm, you know, I kind of, I, I kind of had to just like give up on Snapchat. I, I do have the TikToks primarily use them to disassociate, but I also occasionally post on there, but um and your Facebook, Instagram, etc. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week, guys. If you ever want to ask questions, give feedback, or just provide some suggestions regarding the podcast, find me on Ian Shivers Dog Advocate on Instagram. I'll be happy to help. If you're feeling really generous, leave us a review on whatever platform it is that you're listening to this podcast on. And if you want to nerd out more with us, then find our sponsors because they're the ones that make all of this possible. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Canine Caregivers. I've had so many people reach out to me over the years, not knowing where to turn to online for reliable and consistent advice on how to raise a healthy and happy dog. The information out there is hard to navigate. It's hard to know who to trust and who not to trust. And frankly, some of it is just downright dangerous. That's why we created Canine Caregivers, a place where you can come and get educational resources and access a supportive community founded on the care approach for people just like you, whether you've just brought a dog into your life or you've got a dog that is experiencing some unwanted behaviors. The content is updated regularly 
and we constantly keep in touch with our members to make sure that we are bringing relevant and up-to-date content that truly matters to you. There's different tiers of membership for different needs, so you can be sure that you don't have to break the bank to access the information that can literally make all the difference to the quality of life between you and your dog. Head to caninecaregivers.com.au to learn more.